If you run a small business or any kind of business, really, knowing your numbers can help direct the success you're intending. Those numbers are often called KPIs, Key Performance Indicators. For many people, it's a huge mystery, but today we're going to break it down and explain some great ideas that you can use to help you track your success. You're listening to Leadership Powered by Common Sense with your host, Doug Thorpe. Here's Doug. Hello again, everyone. This is Leadership Powered by Common Sense. I am your host, Doug Thorpe. And as we said in the lead-in, we're going to be talking KPI today. I have found a gentleman. His name is Jeff Smith. He has become known worldwide as the KPI guy. Jeff, welcome to the show. Hey, Doug, thank you for finding me. And thank you, for, of course, for having me on the show. I feel blessed. Hey, I, well, I'm happy to have you here. So as we uh, talked, you and I, you know, leading up to the getting ready for the show and even in the green room today, we... Uh, uh, we know you've had an interesting journey, and so let's start with that. Let's explain to everybody how you kind of became known as the KPI guy. Ah, oh, oh, this is a big journey, and the, the KPI guy came in later, actually, but I will explain how the KPI guy came to be. So I've written a book. In fact, I've written seven books which are international number one bestsellers. I do training and I also speak at conferences. Now, Doug, my name is not too difficult to remember, right? Right. Jeff Smith. It's, however, <laughs> it's the, how the KPI guy came about was when I speak at conferences and there are other speakers on the stage, so you can have a few thousand people in the audience, the event organizers usually go to the audience after the event and say, what do you think about the event? Uh, what did you like about it? What takeaways will you get? And then they ask this question, which of the speakers was your favorite speaker? Who gave you the most value? <laughs> and this is how the KPI guy came about. So bear in mind, there's a number of speakers of which Jeff Smith was perhaps one of three or four. The answer would typically be this. Who's my favorite speaker? Um, you know, that, um, that, um, you know, the KPI guy, you know him, that guy. <laughs> and then the organizer would say, Jeff Smith. Yeah, that's him, the KPI guy. So, <laughs> so I can't assume that people would remember my name. I mean, honestly, why would they? People are really interested in what's in it for them and what value they get from a conference. So I was listening to these um, videos after the conferences and I just kept on hearing the same thing, the KPI guy. So it kind of stuck. And then when I was speaking to other people and like you today, we've got Jeff Smith, the KPI guy. So, so I didn't create it. It just kind of got thrust upon me. Well, uh, blessing in disguise, I'm guessing, because as you say, you know, people don't necessarily know the name. They just look for the, the outcome and they look for the value you can help them with. But 
let's get into a, a, a little more of your backstory. I found it fascinating, and I don't want to steal your thunder, but uh, KPI is a numbers game. And um, as I recall, you had some trouble with numbers in the early going. <laughs> okay, let, let me put this into context. So we, you're referring, I think, to my school days at high school, right? So at this point at school, I had no interest nor any academic focus. My parents were great. They're very loving, but they were not mentors to me. They, they never spoke to me about school, helped with anything. They just made sure I had my uniform. I was fed and out I went. And, and that, that was it. That was, that was it. So then I, I was a keyboard player from about 12 years old and that was my only interest i did not want to know about history geography especially mathematics and english um was i dumb no it's just that i didn't have any help or mentorship to guide me and i just went into the in into music that was it so what happened when i finished at high school i I did not do very well at mathematics. I did not do very well at English. And now today I'm on record as the most successful author in history on a book about mathematics, which is both <laughs> English and mathematics. So you have to say, well, how on earth did that happen? So this, this is, I think the, the, the story you're alluding to. So, so let me fill in on this then. How does somebody who didn't do well at maths and English write the best-selling books in the world in history on mathematics? So here's what happens. I left school and I got an apprenticeship as a mechanical and electrical engineer. I loved it. Part of that, I went to college and I found my academic focus. And then I did really well. So, but I had to work and catch up a lot, of course, and I invested a lot in myself uh, to, to catch up. So I did that, but all the time, I still wanted to be a musician. So I got to when I was 18 years old, and the, the shorter version of this story, I qualified as a mechanical electrical engineer. I got my papers and then I quit. I became a professional musician. Mm. What happened then, I, um, I was a very good musician. So I'm going back to the 70s now, late 1970s. So CDs were not invented. The internet wasn't around. So if there was a singer who wanted to appear on stage, they had to have live music. I was that live music. So I used to play cabaret, play nightclubs and all of this stuff. And I was exposed to some very rich and some very famous people. And at the age of 18, I was exposed to my first person of wealth. So what had happened, so by day I used to sell keyboards, by night I used to play in nightclubs. During the day, a guy came into my store, pulled up outside the front in a Porsche 911, which is my dream car, but wow. He got out of the car and he looked at me and I thought, wow. And then he came into the store. He bought the, this keyboard, which in the 1970s was $5,000. I mean, it's a lot of money now, but then it was huge. 
So long story short, Doug, he bought this keyboard and said, hey, Jeff, I'd like you to deliver it to my home and play it for me. Set it all up, which is not an unusual request. So I went to his home. The house was surrounded with a brick wall with electric gates and video. 1970s. It's like, this is like James Bond. So I go into the house, oh, into the driveway, down to the house, and it's a mansion. It's U-shaped. And he says, bring it through to the east wing. And I'm like, oh my goodness me. We were living in a state house at the time. I mean, at this point, we could afford food every day. But when I was younger, food was available most of the time. But there were times when we couldn't afford food. Anyway, so to see this was like, oh my goodness me. So what happened, that, that evening finished, we had a wonderful evening and I played music for him. And then I came home and here's the thought I had. How does a millionaire become a millionaire? My dad was a very clever guy, but we're broke. And he, he's helped build bridges all over the world. I mean, he's a seriously clever guy and had a, a really high ranking job just wasn't paid very much and then here's this guy porsche 911 u-shaped mansion bought this five thousand dollar keyboard and it's like what's the difference between the two so what i did in the next few years i interviewed 325 millionaires successful people rich people famous people and my first question of how does a millionaire become a millionaire was answered relatively quickly. <clears throat> but then, growing out of my youth, I realized success is not always about money, is it, right? And success is measured yeah. in very different ways, especially yeah. in business and our personal life. So I then changed my question to become, how do successful people become successful? So that, that was my quest in life. So I, I, I get to the age of 23 and I realize I don't want to be a musician anymore. It's just not for me. So you're working when everybody else is having a great time. <laughs> and I just wanted that great time. <laughs> so, so I quit and I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I joined the automotive industry as a car salesperson until I decided, I thought, I'll do that until I find out what it is I really want to do. But I did real well. And within two years, I was sales manager looking after a team. Within two years of that, I was a general manager looking after the whole franchise dealership. So I'm 27 and one of the youngest dealer principals in the UK. Then at 29, I get promoted onto the board of directors and I'm now running 10 full-blown car dealerships. Now, this is where key performance indicators enter the story, really, because when you're running one business, as you said in the lead-in, we all use them. Problem is, they're shrouded in mystery and often used incorrectly. In the main, I would say 95% of people really misunderstand them. They think they know what they're for, but many don't.
And what had happened to me, Doug, is that, how can I put this? Key performance indicators, they're just natural for me. Because when I was a sales manager, I wanted to understand what was happening with the sales team. How many inquiries have we had? How many of those inquiries led to orders? And all of the steps in between. So it was, I thought everybody measured this stuff you know, and, and measured them correctly. I just assumed that they did. So when I became a general manager, I'm looking after a service department, a parts department, a body shop, a rental company, new vehicle sales, used vehicle sales. So I had to have a whole suite of key performance indicators to understand what was going on in the company at the end of each day. So the next day, I knew where to focus my attention rather than guessing or doing the stuff I liked. So, um, so I did that and we won every single award possible from the manufacturer and everybody's scratching their heads saying, how does this young guy is come from nowhere is winning everything. And the answer, key performance indicators. I was measuring everything, prioritizing it, which then guided me in the direction, of my goals and objectives that then escalated. I was then promoted to be on the board of directors, uh, an operations director to look after 10 dealerships. Now it becomes critical because when you're looking at one business and you're on site, you can walk around, you can get some feeling, you can see what's happening, you can talk to people. But when you have 10 businesses in 10 different locations with a geographical spread, you lose that privilege. So what you have to do then is develop the ability to understand what's happening from a distance. And this is where I really, really accelerated with key performance indicators. So I'd get the information from the managers at the end of each day, they'd send them through by fax as it was then, if you remember those things. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then, um, as if by magic, I'd turn up at the dealership that has a problem and I'd speak to the relevant manager and they'd, and they'd say, I've sent you the information, but how did you come to the conclusion that we have this problem? Because you're absolutely right. So then I started teaching all of the managers about key performance indicators. And then the whole group like really, really excelled, really excelled. So that's the story of how I got into key performance indicators. Because I was so successful then, I, I got to the age of 32 and I was headhunted by a consultancy company that said, we love what you're doing. Your success is incredible. We'd like you to join us to teach other people how to do it. And Doug, teaching people how to do it, that's my thing. That's what I love more than anything else. You know, one day when I was um, a director of this um, group of 10 dealerships, one of the managers said to me, hey, Jeff, if you won a million dollars, what would you do? And I said, I tell you what, I'm going to bounce the question back. I'll come back tomorrow and we'll talk through our answers. So the, the sales manager, I asked him the next day, I said, what would you do with a million dollars? He said, oh, I'd buy a nice house. I'd buy a Porsche or a Ferrari and all the usual trappings. And I thought, yeah, that, 
that's not me because then your money's gone. And so I said, you know, I wouldn't do the job that I do now because I don't like dealing with bank managers. I do it, but I don't enjoy the politics of it. And I don't enjoy the politics surrounded with all of those associations. Dealing with the franchises for ordering vehicles and things, I can do without that too. What I really like is to develop people so that they can get on. That, that's what I do. And he said something quite profound. He said, Jeff, you don't need a million dollars to do any of those things. And I thought, you know, now is the time to design my destiny if you will. Yeah. So I joined this consultancy company who'd been courting me for a year or so. And I joined with them and it was to look after the UK. And I did that for seven years. I really enjoyed it, but there came a point where my integrity didn't match theirs and I'll leave it there. But one of the things we had, I had the idea to write this book. And it was about key performance indicators. And it was, I was thankful for the journey I'd had in the automotive industry. And I knew many people would follow in my footsteps, but there's nothing, there's no help, there's nothing. So what I thought I would do is write this book to help those people who are following the same journey as I. So I went to the managing director of the consultancy company and I said, I have an idea for this book. And I explained the idea and he went, no, nobody <laughs> will be interested in that kind of book. Nobody will read it. Nobody will certainly would want to buy it. And the other thing is you are not the person to write it. <laughs> yeah. So, oh, okay. So having taken those punches in the face, I thought, okay, I'll go share the idea with someone else, but this company clearly isn't going to want me to write this book and publish it. So I spoke to a few other people and they, their response was the same. No, yeah. nobody, yeah. nobody will buy a book like that. And the, what I resolved in my own mind, Doug, was this, they're talking about their abilities, not mine. And I understood key performance indicators and the power they yield. They didn't. That's why they thought it would not be a good idea. And who are they to say, I'm not the person to write this book. I make that decision, not them. Yeah. Right. So well, that's a life lesson for anybody that that's paying attention right now. The, the idea you've got, the basis that you've come to that conclusion. Yeah. Yeah. Don't let anybody talk you out of it or turn you away from the idea. I want to, uh, fascinating story, Jeff. I, I want to get into some details to help our listeners and the owners that are wondering about this. You know, I'm going to start with the idea that inevitably when I go into a client's business for the first time, I will ask about the numbers that they track and, and how they go about assessing whether they're on target, on task, you know, on plan. And oftentimes there's a blank stare. 
Yep. It's well, you know, uh, uh, the old joke, I'm, I'm an old banker and the old joke is, well, I've still got checks. I must have money. And, <laughs> um, you know, business owners are saying, well, you know, I still see customers coming in the door. I still see cash flowing. So we must be doing okay. And, you know, you, you covered a lot of ground in talking about the auto dealership, but you know, the reality is that's, just not true for an owner to say that that we're we're probably okay in their gut inevitably the in and the reason i get called in is they know there's a problem they they know they're missing an opportunity they know they're not hitting the next level that they would like to hit so i start talking to them about just some of the basics on how their business works how their process flows things that they can and should and could be tracking. So I'm going to ask you if 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 you were to go into a brand new business and have that discussion with the owner, where do you usually start your discussion? Uh, similarly, I'll ask, what are your objectives? Where are you now? Where would you like to be? And how do you measure those things? So I just let them show me what they have. First of all, I do take notice, but at this point, that stuff is really not important at this point. It comes in a little later. What's important for me, once I understand their business objectives, where they are, where they want to be, and the speed at which they want to do it, of course, there's three things that will determine all of that, three key performance indicators. And, and I'll share these secrets with you now. The reason that people are in business is not to have money in the bank. That's not it. It's to generate a key performance indicator called return on funds employed or return on investment. It's the same thing. So if I invest $100,000 in my company at the end of the year, I want to still have that $100,000 plus a percentage more let's say 21% for a number. So <clears throat> to understand whether a business is growing and continue to fund its own growth, it needs to have a return on funds employed, a return on investment. Now, it is possible to have money in the bank and have a negative return on investment. And this is where the owners just keep feeding and feeding the monster that's not working for them. So in this point, we can say a company can survive a long, long time without making any profits, but it can't survive a single day without any cash. Mm. And the cash yeah. comes from the generation of selling something, making a profit on that something that you're selling and your customers paying you what you've sold in a timely manner. Now, if you're selling something and the profit is not big enough for the amount of investment you're putting in, then your return on investment will not be great. But if you're doing that and your customers are not paying you either, or they're paying you slowly, then you get into cash flow difficulties. That's another area for another podcast and another day. So what I'm talking about now is the ability to buy stuff, sell stuff, make a profit and get paid. 
So whether we get paid or not is not reported in your return investment. The return on investment is really asking, I've invested $100,000 at the end of the year. I want that plus a percentage growth, which I'll say is 21 for now. So that's why people are in business is to generate a return on investment. Now, the interesting thing is that doesn't happen by itself. Life is about cause and effect. So you have to understand then if you don't like the effects in your business, let's say the 21%, then you have to change the causes. So what are the causes? And this is where the real magic happens now. I'm going to share two key performance indicators that dovetail into this one, that when you get all three and you understand the relationship between all three, this is the magical formula for understanding how any business in the world works. So imagine this. First of all, I want to know about profit. So I pretty much guess that people know what profit is. So we buy something, we sell something for a higher price and we paid for it. We take away our expenses and we're left with a profit at the end of the day. Now, I'm not talking about a gross profit here. I'm talking about net, net, net. Everything's taken out apart from interest charges. And the reason I leave out interest charges is that no two companies are funded in the same way. So if you want to compare one business with another, let's leave out this distortion. So this is called NPBI, net profit before interest or EBIT, earnings before interest and tax. So you look at this and then you can understand how much profit am I making on the products that I'm selling after I've taken away all of my costs and how does that compare with my competition? Yeah. So let's call that 3.5%. That means if I sell something, I'll make a profit of 3.5% on the turnover after all of my expenses have been paid. Okay, so we've looked at return on investments. I've put some money in, how much do I get back? We've looked at profit, so we've bought some stuff, we've sold some stuff, how much profit has been made on that? And the third one, this is about speed. This is called circulation. And it's about how, how things rotate, how your money rotates, the speed at which your money turns. Now, I'm gonna leave that there and. Go away, give you another example, and then come back to this. It'll be easier to understand. So if you're selling products and you have 10 of these products in stock all of the time, and you sell 10 products a year, then you'll rotate your stock or the money that's invested in the stock once. That's not smart. Yeah. yeah. And this, this is one of the things I look at and I say, okay, then... Can we still sell what we're selling with a lesser investment in your stocks? So instead of investing in 10 items, let's invest in five items. So what would happen then if you stock five items and you sell 10 items throughout the year, then the circulation of your money would be two. Now this is really important because let's think of it in this context. If you put your money in the bank 
you get an interest rate, you get an interest return. Let's do easy math. Let's say 1% per year. But if you were offered 2% per year, would you want it? Of course you would. You, it's be double this. And that's what we're doing with the investment in stock because we're generating the same amount of turnover from half of the investment. Yeah. <clears throat> this speed element, this circulation is a multiplier and it multiplies the amount of profit that you make. Now, what's fascinating here is that we as a business control circulation. It's not at the mercy of the market. It's not at the mercy of your customers. It's not at the mercy of anything else other than you. So let me remind you, we've said return on investment will use 21%. Profit, 3.5. And if we got circulation to be six times a year, if these three relate to each other. So if you imagine a triangle with the flat at the bottom and the pointy bit at the top, we put the circulation in the top at 21. We put the profit in the bottom left at 3.5. And then we put the circulation in the bottom right at six. So if we did 21, the return on investment, divided by your profit at 3.5, 21 divided by 3.5 equals six. So what this is doing now, I call this a pyramid of power. It's how three key performance indicators work together in a given instance to give us the, the, the sum is greater than the total of its parts. So it really helps us to understand. So we can look at when our return on investment is 21 and we move the triangle the other way and we divide it by the circulation, let's say six, 21 divided by six is 3.5. 3.5, our profit, multiplied by our circulation at six, 3.5 times six equals 21. And that's where the magic is because this is what I look at first, because I take this data, I put it into the pyramid of power, and then I can say, how good are we at buying and selling in the marketplace, which typically could be good or better than average. But then the real important one is, how good are we at managing our funds and our investment in stock? Yeah. And it's those yeah. two that multiply by each other that give us this return on investment. So if we kept our profitability the same at 3.5, but we increased our circulation, in other words, how smart we are at managing our money, and we change that number six to a number seven, 3.5 times seven, then your return on investments multiplies exponentially. And what I found, here's the thing, Doug, in all successful people, in all top achievers, they focus a little amount. Let me say 10% of their effort is on the profitability. 90% of their effort is how smart am I with my money? Because I know this is the multiplier, because if I can maintain the same turnover and the same profit as everybody else, but with far fewer funds than everybody else, 
then my return on investment is significantly higher and I can grow faster. And that yeah. is the secret to my success and what happened with all the other things. What comes from there now is when you look at the profitability, there are many factors that affect the profitability. And that's when you look within a business about your marketing, your selling practices, right. and all of right. those things. Then you can look at the other side and say, how smart are we with our money? Do we have enough stock, too much stock, which is often the case, right. not enough stock maybe, and right. it's all of those things, but you've got a clear, clear separation with all successful people. They know the difference between the two. Yeah. And what I've found is people who would like to be more successful, but perhaps don't know how. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> all of their focus is on trying to sell more and make more profit. And it does not follow. I agree. And i tell you what, Jeff, on that note, we're going to need to take our commercial break. But when we get back, we're going to dig into that aspect of what most business owners are really focused on. So hang with us, folks. We'll be right back. Business is all about solving complex problems as fast as you can create them. Become the best problem solver by leading others to greatness, too. And the first step is going to DougThorpe.com. Doug Thorpe is known globally for coaching entrepreneurs and business leaders, improving their performance and the work output of everyone surrounding them. You can find health, wealth, and happiness by learning to lead others to health, wealth, and happiness. Go to DougThorpe.com now and order Doug's books or hire him to coach your managers. That's Doug, T-H-O-R-P-E.com. Well, hello again, everyone. We're back. And today we are talking key performance indicators. And that might be a dry subject to some, but I tell you what, if you're paying attention here, you're going to realize there's some magic in understanding the right indicators in the right way. And you can really make a material difference in your business by doing just that. My guest is Jeff Smith. And before the break, we were uh, leading into, he, he described his magic triangle of numbers to follow. If you didn't catch it, we're not going to repeat it right now. Just hit the rewind button, go back to the first half. But um, what I want to do, Jeff, is get into the idea that um, tracking that return on those invested funds and, and working with some of the other uh, accelerator numbers that make those shine, so to speak, <clears throat> is, is it strikes me as it's just not the average business owner's focus. I was saying while we were on the break that uh, oftentimes when I go into a new client's office, we'll start talking about what their perception of their business is. And the number one thing they'll ask about is how do I get more leads? They're always thinking about the top side of the sales funnel and that implies I'm happy with how my process works. The profits are okay. I just need to do more of it and I'll be okay. I'll, I'll hit the goals I want. So talk to us a little more about that focus and, and changing the dynamic of the, uh, the attention to the details that it really requires to grow a business. Well, you hit on some amazing things there and, I agree. When I ask business owners, what would you like? Most say more leads. Now, as I said earlier, life is about cause and effect. If you don't like the effects in your life, you have to change the causes. 
So more leads, that would mean you're converting every, every lead and maximizing the profits in every lead that you have. Is that correct? And they say, no, that's not correct. I say, well, why do you want more if you're not achieving that? Because if you get more and it's costing you money to get more, right? <laughs> what happens is your return on investment is going to go down and you're in business to generate return on investment. So if you're paying out more and more and more, and I'll put tongue in cheek here to cover up your errors, because you're not dealing with the leads that you do get well enough. The only reason you want more is some kind of, I don't know, justification that what you're doing is okay. What you need to do is to be brave enough to stand up and say, how are we doing with the leads that we already have? Now, there's some key performance indicators out there in sales that, that give some generalizations. I neither like them nor, nor agree with them, but I'll, I'll relay them because it's a popular conversation. <clears throat> Out of all of the leads that you get, how many do you convert in, into a sale? And most people say about a third, 33%. And I say, right, okay. If you have more leads, that means you're quite happy to burn the remaining 66% of all these people you get. Is that, is that what you want? Oh, well, I hadn't thought about it that way. I just think if we fill up the funnel, we'll sell more stuff. And I say, yeah, but that's going to cost you money. What about if we examine what you're doing successfully with the 33% that you are converting, and then refine what you're doing, whether that is the quality of your marketing, where you market, how you market, what happens when someone contacts you, what happens in the sales process, at what point are you losing them, this 66%, what stage in the sales process? And I've written a book, Doug, all about the sales process. So, um, there's so much in there in psychology. And if I can summarize, if your customer is dancing a waltz, but your sales team is trying to do a really passionate tango, then your sales process is not going to match with the customer's buying process. You're going to tread all over the toes. Yeah. And that's, that's what's happening in the 66% of people that you're losing. Or well, and yeah. every business I've ever taken a look at, it, especially once they've grown to a certain scale, there is an age-old friction between sales and operations. Mm -hmm. Sales creates an order. They hand it off to operations to fulfill, to deliver on the good or the service. And inevitably, there's a high percentage of disconnect the, the salesman sold a, a giant blue rock and the operations team paints a red square and then they send it to the customer's doorstep and the customer says, that's not what I ordered. Yeah. And there's this, and I'm over-dramatizing the, sure, sure. the picture for the point, 
but there's this age old friction between operations and sales. And I love yours, the tango and the waltz doing the two different dances. That's exactly what it amounts to. So to your other point, if a company leadership team is thinking what I need is more sales. Well, (laughs) if you've already got a fundamentally flawed process of delivery more sales is only going to exacerbate the expense side of all your numbers because you're spending more to get those sales to your point. And the margins may even be less on the new sales you get. They will. And you know what happens, Doug? They'll go bust even faster. Yeah. We we had an old saying in, in my banking days, we would look, a customer would bring his numbers in and, and he would show uh, a loss, you know, red ink at the bottom line. Yeah. And he wants funding to grow sales. And we'd go, you're going to make this up in volume? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. You know, we need more, we need more prospects. We need more leads. That is... When you're highly successful and you're a well-oiled, fine machine that's really, really maximizing everything, then is the time to grow and get more leads. In, in all of the business I've worked in, I've never tried to get more leads, ever. Not once, ever. Here's what happens. So... <clears throat> You gave a great analogy where the salesperson sells a huge blue rock and then the ops team deliver a small red square. So they overpromise and underdeliver. That's not what I ordered. And then then you think about customer referrals. What will that customer say to their friends about your customer, about your company? And this is more important than anything. Getting the referral business is way more important than marketing to get new leads. Way more important. And the way I looked at my businesses, even my business today, there's three elements that make up turnover. You can, one, get more strangers, new leads. Two, you can take the existing customers you have and increase the average order value. What does that mean? That means the customers you already have, serve them very well and sell them more stuff so they pay you more money. So increase the average order value. And then number three is increase the average order frequency. That means When you look at the customers that you already have, you get them to spend more and you get them to spend more often. Now, when we look at these three, we can get more leads. So new customers, this is the formula for turnover. It's the amount of customers you have multiplied by the average order value, multiplied by the average order frequency. So if most people's strategy is on gaining more leads, then they're clearly not focusing on how to look after their customers better so they spend more and spend more often. And the most difficult way of all to grow your business is to keep on contacting strangers. 
you don't know the easiest way is to work with the people that like you and trust you and are happy to spend more there was a um, large plumbing organization in uh, the area where i live who many many years ago made no bones about the objective is they wanted to be able to come into every home in town and do a job. They said nothing about customer retention, like come into that home, do the job well, and get called back the next time and the next time and the next time. And and you know, as a homeowner, you're going to, over the life of the time you're in the home, you're going to have multiple plumbing problems. It's just yeah. part of the part of the game. But here, this large plumbing organization was going to be satisfied with getting that initial call into the home, and that was it. That's all they cared about. And, of course, many years later, that was not a successful strategy. So the company was bought out, and the new owner came in and said, no, we're, we're going to pay attention to how we do on that one job when we get it so that we get that referral business and that callback and and maybe even potentially the remodeling opportunity when the homeowner decides to add a bathroom or change a bathroom or redo the kitchen. So it it's it's interesting how owners can sometimes get blindsided with that idea that all I need is more leads. Mm, absolutely. Now, rewinding back over what you've said, when we buy something, and this is anything, we're talking in the context of business, but it applies to everything in life. There are two factors that override the psychology of our buying process. The first one is trust. Mm -hmm. If I trust you, I'll do business with you. If I don't trust you, I won't do business with you. So trust is binary. I, I either trust you or I don't trust you, right. you know, you, you can't be a little bit pregnant, right? Yeah. <laughs> you, you are or you're not. Right, right. So, so this is the thing. So when we think about just particularly trade people like a plumber, electrician, a carpenter, this trust is more evident to us in those situations, but trust is there for everything we buy. The second one is called like. Do I like you? Now, I'm sure everyone can think of an example where they've trusted someone and they really like them. And because they like them, they will pay more for a product that they could possibly get cheaper elsewhere. But they're happy to pay a little more. And it's because of these two factors. One, trust. Two, like. Now, let me understand. Um, really compound these two so trust is binary it's on or off it's like a switch like is a sliding scale so let's say zero to ten if the slider is on ten and i really really like you then the price of the product is not so much of an obstacle because i trust you and I like you, I want to do business with you, and I'll pay you more. Uh, where the liking principle starts to fall down, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, this is where we get leads 
but we don't convert them. So if we're generating leads, but we're unable to convey trust, I don't care how much you charge me, I don't trust you, bam, you're gone. So you need to examine your website, your marketing strategy and everything and think about and examine how are we conveying trust? Because without that, you can have a million leads tomorrow, you won't convert one. So you have to think about this trust and have a look at that. The other one, if you're selling stuff and you're being faced with discount, here's why. The likability scale at 10, you'll do very little discounting. If that slider comes down to two or three, what happens then is the trust switch has been flicked. So it's okay, I trust you. However, I'm not gushing with love for you. I'll do business with you. But there's other people who I could also do business with. So now price is an issue. That's an interesting dynamic because, you know, there's a very popular saying, I think Ivan Miser of the BNI, you know, institution or network worldwide, you know, he, he's a big advocate of that no like and trust model. It says we do business with people we know, like, and trust. And in, in his mindset and his teaching, it's, it is a progression. You have to figure out if you like somebody before you even activate the thought process about trust. So if, if I don't like somebody, I'm not going to spend any brain power on building trust. Now, what I, but that said, what comes to my mind, I'm thinking of a case I, I know a, a situation where a company has trust in the marketplace. People trust that they can do some of the highly technical things they promise, but they fundamentally don't like the guys that are the principals in the company. Yep. And, and there's a, that was, has always been a conundrum for me as I look at their business model, because I guess to be honest, I'm, I'm, I'm on that no like and trust progression, but I like your way of looking at it that it is potentially possible to trust a business without liking what they're doing and that that's where you get into customer wants to negotiate price yeah absolutely so let, let's take the example of uh, the one you just gave so there's a company that's technically competent they're respected they're highly trusted but people don't like the people who are sitting there so they're in the game but they're not in the game alone because they're not liked ah although i trust them is there another company that i might trust but like more and i'll tell you something doug the company who you will like more you'll pay more money to mm -hmm. the, the company who's trusted and well respected but you don't like you only do it either because there's no option or they're the cheapest. Yeah. yeah. That's why I, right at the beginning, I like to look at this pyramid of power that I explained earlier. And you look, you look at the profitability. And if you've got high profitability, but very low sales volume, so you're not selling much, but what you're doing is high. That means you have a high likability factor, but very little trust. If you've got lots of sales volume, 
but very low profitability, that means you've got a high trust factor, but a very low likability factor. Mm. If you've got high sales volume and high profitability compared to whatever else is in the marketplace, then you've got a good stable trust factor and you're ringing all the bells on the likability factor and people want to deal with you. Now, when that happens, we spoke earlier about referrals. That's where referrals come from. And the best way to grow your business by far is referrals. If yeah. you're trusted and liked and you have a stable referral system, people will crawl over broken glass to help you. <laughs> I like that. I like that. Well, Jeff, I tell you what, we've uh, run out of time here. This has been good, and I certainly hope it's been helpful to those who might be listening. Uh, give the listeners a link or something. Tell them how they can get a hold of you the best way if they're interested in knowing more. Sure. I, I also do podcast myself. It's not about business strategy. It's about how successful people become successful. And it's uh, called Secrets of Success. Uh, we do talk about business sometimes. We do talk about key performance indicators sometimes. Yeah, it's me, right? The KPI guy. <laughs> so that is in there. But the, the podcast itself takes a successful person and then unwraps them to say, how did you do it? What was your mindset? So that probably be of most interest and it's free also. So you can find it at jeff-smith.com. So you can find there, it's on Amazon, it's on Apple and all, all the other places. Uh, if you're interested in key performance indicators, I'm happy to have a chat with you. You can click a link on my schedule uh, and we can do some business mentoring. That's available too. I have a number of books which I've written about key performance indicators. If you're interested in the psychology of selling, especially big ticket items like cars and aircraft and stuff like that, um, then I have a book called Close More Deals. Mm, and it's the psychology. Yeah. It's the psychology of the customer's buying process and how you need to match your sales process so you're both doing a waltz or a tango. Not not different ones, yeah, as I yeah. said earlier. So right. the answer to all of that is jeff-smith.com. That's great, Jeff. So folks, uh, you see it on his screen there, so uh, easy tag. But uh, we'll also have some of that information over in the show notes. Uh, so um, I want to thank everyone for listening. And one last time, Jeff, thank you, sir. The um, If you're listening to our show on audio, we do want to remind you we've got video over on our YouTube channel by the same name, Leadership Powered by Common Sense. Hop over there, uh, subscribe to the channel if you would, or hit my website, dougthorpe.com, and uh, jump on our newsletter list so you can get alerts. We are publishing podcast episodes three times a week, so we've got a lot of content coming at you, a lot of good stuff that's been built up and yet to come. So uh, I've got a busy Q4 opening up, and we'll, uh, we've got some great guests in the pipeline for the future. I do want to remind you that this show has now been syndicated. We are on the IBGR network. You can go there online at ibgr.network is the link. My show is on Fridays at 2 p.m. Eastern time. 
we are uh, online over there. So uh, hop in. The first season is already underway. And I appreciate the good folks and shout out to my friends over there at the IBGR network. So that's going to wrap it up for today. I want to wish everybody a great day and thanks for listening. We'll see you again soon. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Leadership Powered by Common Sense, hosted by Doug Thorpe. If you would like to know more about the coaching and advisory services he provides, visit DougThorpe.com.